ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before I get to the interview with Andy Bruno about his environmental history of the Kola Peninsula, I want to draw listeners' attention to two recent stories in Russia that concern local social and economic struggles in the regions. The first is about a tractor protest staged by farmers from Krasnodar. Their plan was to drive a convoy of tractors to Moscow and protest against the seizure of local farmland by big agribusiness. As Alexei Volchenko, one of the rally's organizers, told RBC, the large agricultural holding companies take land away from farmers and shareholders and basically bring the rural areas to their knees because the villagers live on the money farmers spend, while the agricultural holdings are all registered as offshore companies in Cyprus, and so on. The farmers got as far as Rostov before a hundred cops blocked their convoy. The second story concerns miners from Rostov, several of whom have been on hunger strike to protest not having been paid since June 2015. Their company, King Coal, owes 2,200 employees over 330 million rubles. The miners protest in front of King Coal headquarters daily. I hesitate to make any claims as to whether these two events represent anything besides snapshots into how some Russians are experiencing the economic crisis. Most struggles in Russia remain local, even when they speak to national conditions. I do want to stress that you won't learn about such stories by focusing on Putin and seeking a revival of Kremlinology, as some of our esteemed Russia analysts suggest. I'll post this comment with the links of these two events on the podcast's website, seansrussiablog.org. I'm pleased to welcome Andy Bruno to the podcast to talk about the development of the Kola Peninsula in Russia's north and the environmental impact and legacy Soviet industrialization wrought on the region and its people. 
Andy Bruno is an assistant professor of history at Northern Illinois University, where he specializes in the environmental history of modern Russia. He is the author of The Nature of Soviet Power, an Arctic Environmental History. Here's Andy Bruno. So your book is an environmental history of, of Russia in the 20th century. By telling the story of the Kola Peninsula and its development throughout, really from the beginning of the century to the collapse of the Soviet Union, let's start by having you describe the Kola Peninsula and why you chose it as your geographical place of study. Well, the Kola Peninsula is a region in northwest Russia, literally the northwest corner, so it borders Norway and Finland. Almost all of it's above the Arctic Circle, though it's in a location where it somewhat still gets some of the Gulf Stream current, so it's sort of more mild than some of the places out in Siberia, even at lower latitudes. The region itself was not very developed by the beginning and late imperial period. It had less than 10,000 people, mostly based in a few towns, some Sami pastoralists at the beginning of the 20th century. By the end of the 20th century, though, it's the most built up, industrialized, populated, militarized part of the global Arctic. And so this seemed to offer a very interesting case study for examining how the Soviet development, in particular in relation to it's interact the natural world, uh, came about, what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and get the contours of a fairly dramatic story of a specific place. How I came to the, it is a little bit different because I went through sort of different processes of thinking about doing sort of a, I mean, there was always going to be an ecological focus. So I was thought about for a while doing a forest region, a steppe region, and a tundra and a taiga, a far north region. But I then opted for instead to do one specific place. A lot of environmental historians have emphasized the importance of place in their narratives. Um, and that allowed me to, to go through the dramatic changes in this region on a longer time scale, which I think is actually an interesting way to think about history. In Soviet history in particular, we mostly stick to fairly narrow, though not extremely narrow, chronological frameworks. But I think in order to tell the story of environmental change, you really had to go from the early 20th century to the present. Do you think if you would have chosen, say, a steppe region or a different ecological region for this study, what differences do you think in terms of the environment would have st stood out to you? Like, in, in, you know, you're dealing with places in the far north, it's very cold. So the, the efforts to develop that are, are, I would imagine, be are difficult because of just the temperate zone of it. Do you think that they would be like, what kind of differences do you think you could you would have if you did a different place? So I think there's a, a bit of a tension here in how I conceive of what I'm arguing and what I'm what I'm putting out there, because on the one hand, I'm wanting to make a case about the importance of elements of the material world, the natural world, as participants in the Soviet story. And I think that that's a case, something that occurs pretty much anywhere you look. That's not something that's limited to the far north. I do think that in the far north, you're able to see it in quite striking ways, in large part because of the issues that you were saying, the extreme cold, the distance from the center, the uninhabited elements of it. And also another thing is the location of mineral resources. This is a facet as well. And you get other min different mineral resources in different locations, which 
give help give rise to um, different ecological conditions. You're not going to have a place like Norilsk down in Kazakhstan because there's not nickel deposits in Kazakhstan, um, and nickel production can generate fairly dramatic ecological change. So th- those are the those are the things that I I would say. I mean, the, there is this sort of focus of wanting to both tell an Arctic environmental history, and, and that's in some ways more responding to global Arctic historians. I was saying, look at this really built up region, but then I also want to emphasize a common Soviet story by looking at a specific region. Let me ask you about that, because one of the things you state and you you, you show in the book, I mean, the, the, the whole book is organized around this issue of the environment or nature itself being a participant in the communist project. So what kind of story do we get from this about the Soviet Union or story of the Soviet Union by looking at it through the environment or through nature as a participant? Okay, um, there's so let me let me explain this point about nature as a participant a little bit more for listeners, because I want to be somewhat clear about what I mean here and what I don't mean, because there's a this is based on a lot of theoretical work, and I take it so far. So I take it far enough that I don't think that it makes sense to think of environment other than the natural world simply in a deterministic, well, there's mountain there, it's here you get this type of civilization, a sort of classical Montesquieu approach. I don't quite go as far as people like Bruno Latour, however, in deconstructing the entire binary between nature and society and, and, and sort of giving this radical epistemological critique of science. I think science mostly gets things right, and that the importance of what he's adding, which is this idea of actor, is that we then are able to see material elements of the world playing a dynamic, interactive role with humans. It's a different way to tell historical stories that isn't just putting them on a purely human plane, isn't just making it be about what Stalin's thinking in his office or what workers are protesting, but about what they're engaging with in the world around them. That's the sort of larger theoretical approach. And then I say, if we look at that in the Soviet case, we actually can go to this very broad question about Soviet power that has been often interpreted as ideological, sometimes interpreted from social historical perspectives, though less often, sometimes geopolitical. And we can see that interactions with the natural environment belong in there as well. It's part of it an assemblage of how Soviet power comes to exist and comes to operate. And so from that sense, I think that if we're going to see how there's a distinctive story of the Soviet Union through environmental interactions, is that we can really sort of in some ways, I think, even better appreciate the way that Soviet power is both extremely robust, but also extremely limited. And this sort of dichotomy comes to the fore by looking at material interactions. So let's go into some of the things that you deal with to show this notion of the, of nature as an actor and how it shapes Soviet power. So let's first have you talk about the construction of the Murmansk Railroad, which of course begins before the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, the way that Tsarist development in the, the Kola Peninsula, that it sets the basic framework for how even the Soviets will try to develop this region. So how did the Tsarist and, and and also Soviet governments confront the challenges of building and maintaining the Murmansk Railroad? In some ways, I'm, there's this common connection that Soviet scholars make about war, those sort of civil war, World War I, war communism era, and later 
brutal industrialization of Stalinism. And in the case of my region, I have a very potent example of this because what happens is they build a rail line to Mormonsk, the Arctic Ocean, during World War One, and they do this largely with POW labor. It's an extremely brutal process. Some probably exaggerated estimates say something like a third of the POWs died while working on the railroad. That's probably overstated, but it's clearly one of the more brutal examples of forced labor during World War One. Going back, though, this idea was not a sort of let's have a brutal industrial project. It was actually characterized by all sorts of boosterism. You know, you'd think that in some ways they were talking about a land of milk and honey or the, the Amazon rainforest by talking about this treasure chest of nature and the ways that they were going to build a railroad up there and help enliven the place and all this very enthusiastic conceptions of nature. And one of the things I'm saying is that when they're doing that, they actually have a pretty positive understanding of the natural world. They're saying, oh, look, Mormonsk has a wonderful harbor. It stays ice-free, which is a strategically important element in why they build the railroad there. They have the project on back burner for a while. It comes and goes. Vita gets disappointed with Nicholas II, early in Nicholas II's reign, for not building it in the late 1890s. But when it actually comes onto the forefront during uh, World War I, they skimp on all sorts of essential things that they need to do to build the railroad properly. They use forced labor. They start talking about the natural world as if it's another front of the war and see it in this very much the sort of we're conquering the North. This is a, a militaristic battlefront. And what I found striking is that then you get similar discussions of the Mormonsk Railroad and railroads in general into the NEP and Stalinist period. Uh, in the NEP period, you actually have a very interesting example where they try to use the Mormonsk Railroad as an industrialization, colonization, transportation combine. They try to use the railroad as a way to develop the region and, and, and settle the region. Um, it doesn't come too much. When they're doing that, they're using the same type of boosterism as you saw before. And then once they turn into building new railroad lines to serve the industrial projects in the 1930s, they're talking about it in these conquest terms again. So there's, in many ways, a lot of the types of environmental interaction, including the, the exposure of workers to and prisoners to harsh natural elements, is something you see both in the Tsarist and then in the Stalinist period. That's interesting. So you see a profound shift in the discourse of the of the natural world in that region in the sense of here it, I am thinking of the idea of pioneerism, of bringing you know, civilization to a new place, conquering the land, and to this turn, essentially, it sounds like the rhetoric of war turns the land into the enemy that has to be now smashed and overcome and transformed. Is that a correct assessment? Yes, then, and then that's one part of it. What I, I mean, I'm somewhat transitioning, but what I sort of then turn to in a more full assessment of Stalinist ideas of nature is that that brutal, domineering conquest mentality is paired in their minds seamlessly with this utopian harmonious idea of um, we're going to build 
improve nature and make it a workers turn the north into a workers paradise in terms of having nice parks in terms of having ski slopes for people to relax and all of this type of things in terms of even having in the most extreme form you have these ideas of we're going to eliminate pollution by maximizing production essentially we're going to use all of the mined material we take out of there so that we all of the waste material gets recycled and it's very much seen that the, the thing i want to emphasize is that i call this sort of a dualistic understanding that i think really is one of the few things i think is somewhat distinctive about the soviet union is the extent to which this idea that we can develop we can, as, as aggressively as possible, and we can protect the environment and improve the environment, it, are held together. They're not seen as contradictory. And I, I mean, that's something you see elsewhere. I mean, in some ways, that's, at least from critics' standpoint, one of the problems of the whole idea of sustainable development. But I think it's very extreme in this case, and that you get these people who really, and I think they truly believe this, just don't see these as contradictions. Is this what's related to your idea of Stalinism as an ecosystem in terms of trying to create this to overcome the contradictions between, say, development and protecting the environment or developing this rapid, brutal way, but also creating a worker's paradise? Talk about what you mean by Stalinism as an ecosystem, and, and particularly your discussion of this is around the attempts to develop appetite mining in the Beanie Mountains. So what do you mean by Stalinist ecosystem? Let me start by saying that dualism is actually what I think of as distinctive about the Stalinist ecosystem. And what I'm contrasting that is where I'm actually sort of, I'm, I'm using this eco uh, term ecosystem in some ways to play off of the civilizational approach to understanding Stalinism advanced by a scholar such as Stephen Kotkin and others who, you know, in some ways have taken, I mean, I was in some ways very much inspired by the sort of totalistic on the ground, what was it like for people building a new Soviet city, which is what Habinogorsk, later Kirovsk was, a brand new from the, from the ground appetite, uh, which is a phosphorus material uh, used in chemical fertilizers, a city to build that. But I think that by talking about ecosystem, I want to emphasize first and foremost that the natural world was very much an active part of this. Okay, so instead of just a civilization, you see an active part of it. And then also by addressing what the this dualistic understanding of nature, I'm actually trying to pivot away from one of the claims of the civilization approach, at least that the most distinctive thing about Stalinism was its ardent anti-capitalism, that it continually posed itself as a non-capitalist modernity. And that's really where you see the most distinctive elements of the Soviet project. I think in terms of environmental interaction, that's not where you see the most distinctive elements. I think in many ways it was behaving very similar to capitalist industry, where, you, where, where I see more distinctiveness is this, okay, let's both go all out in conquering it and in trying to emphasize the harmony of nature, that both of those things were held together at the same time. That's what I see as more distinctiveness. If I can now step back into a little bit more of the details and nuts and bolts of it and just talk about Habina Gorsk for a second. So this is a town that's in, in the middle of the peninsula uh, in these mountain ranges and nothing's there. 
pretty much. I mean, occasionally there's some Sami families that go through the region, but even they avoid the upland regions in the winter because there's avalanches there, which they tell the Soviets about and the Soviets ignore to the peril because there's actually a lot, some catastrophic avalanches that occur in the late 1930s. The project at, could have been, and this is somewhat distinctive, it could have been something where they sent up a couple thousand miners who got the ore out and sent it back to Leningrad or Petrozavodsk and had it processed at a, at, at a combine in a more temperate region. Instead, they decide, no, we're going to use this to industrialize the place. So we're going to build a socialist city from scratch. We're going to put all these amenities in. And then they're like, hey, but how are we going to solve the labor shortage, which during the first five-year plan, labor shortage was chronic throughout the country. You can imagine how easy it was to attract workers to a place in the Arctic North. Um, And they decide to solve it by relying on this other thing going on, which was the collectivization of agriculture and dekulakization of putatively wealthy, often simply anti-Soviet or not completely complacent peasants. So this city ends up getting populated primarily with forced peasant migrants who then serve as the basis for the industrial transformation of it. And one of the things you see is they have all these sort of very idealistic ideas of what they're going to do in a being, of course, keep the parks, use this complex utilization which they, where they eliminate waste. But instead, at least in this short term, you get child mortality going up, you get the fish stocks being eliminated, you get the forest being destroyed. All of these environmental calamities emerge very quickly because of them sort of mimicking some of the wartime type of tactics of industrial development. You also talk about the the issue, the fact that um, these efforts to colonize and industrialize the Kola Peninsula also comes in a context where you have indigenous people living there. You just mentioned them, the Sami. Talk about the, the Sami and their relationship to the environment and how this intrusion of Soviet industrialization changed their way of life, and particularly their reindeer herders. Is that correct? I found this story very interesting, and in some ways, my first first surface-level looks at it didn't really quite make sense of it. But the Sami are an indigenous group. They are actually more numerous in uh, Norway and Finland than they are in Russia, but they all of that northern part, called sometimes called Sampi, uh, historically called Lapland, is ancestral home to the Sami. The Sami of the Kola Peninsula were mostly hunted reindeer and also fished until the late 19th century. They, they, they herded a bit, often more for transport. They kept some domestic reindeer for transport. But what they weren't really involved with was the large-scale hundreds or if not thousands of reindeer that sometimes were kept uh, in other par- in parts of Siberia. That was actually grew in the region with the arrival of some Komi and Nenets herders in the late 19th century who were escaping an anthrax outbreak among their reindeer. When they got to the Koa Peninsula, that sort of started to change it. These ethnic politics get very confusing about different types of reindeer husbandry, get very confused in the 1920s and 1930s. And you start, what you, what ends up happening is on the one hand, you get Soviet authorities, particular people who were associated with the Committee of the North, which was involved in trying to assist indigenous people, 
promoting, you know, Sami interests. This should be a Sami, you know, we should have some a Sami territory here. We should focus on the Sami against the Komi. But then they were also, on the other hand, saying, hey, this Komi have this industrialized reindeer herding that we want to change the Sami practice into. Okay, so through the 1930s and into the 40s and 50s, you get Kola Sami essentially becoming more reindeer herders because that's the, the economic activity being promoted for them while also having these, well, in the late 1930s, having these brutal, awful ethnic politics take place. So essentially you have a moment where, during the Great Terror, where a bunch of Sami reindeer herders, along with Komi and then its reindeer herders, and along with... Uh, reformers, people who had been at the Committee of North, the North, get accused of being involved in a Sami nationalist plot that was going to give that part of Russia over to Finland. And so you were getting Komi who are being accused of Sami nationalism, essentially. And this is, I mean, this is a larger context, and I can talk more about the environmental aspects of this, but, but you, the ways that these ethnic politics get confused then play out in a very odd way where you then essentially have a revival of Sami ideas, even though they're practicing a state farm version of reindeer husbandry. You get, um, with the Khrushchev's agricultural reforms and into the Brezhnev period, you get them relocating reindeer and, and, and Sami continually into smaller and smaller, more confined state farms. But then by the end of the Soviet period, you actually have most of the reindeer herders having some allegiance to the state farm system that exists because, hey, at least we get paid a decent wage, or not decent, but uh, decent compared to the 1990s. But they end up often at quite at odds with the ethnic activists who are sort of building ties with Sami in Scandinavia at the time. There sort of ends up being this tension among the Kolasami about how attractive the Soviet system was and how much they should be looking to Sami outside of it. In addition to the indigenous population too, it peppered throughout your study are people, and you've already mentioned them, the, you know, dekulkized peasants who are being sent to to work in mines and do industrialization. Uh, you have migrant workers, you have gulag labor of various sorts. Uh, talk about the conditions of these people who worked in these mega projects in the Kola Peninsula and how did they cope, but also help transform the environment there? So there were a lot of forced laborers involved in this entire process, and they often were the ones who were most exposed to natural hazards. This is actually one of the things that I want emphasize in terms of how the environment's playing a role in this story is that what Stalinism was particularly apt to do was to expose people to natural hazards. That's what one of the things that happens with gulag laborers, that happens with special settlers, it even happens with, with quote-unquote voluntary migrants, people who opt to go up there either because they're specialists or because it's an opportunity in their field. And these people often got diseases, they often recall being cold. The ones who stayed end up adapting, though, when that is also part of the story, especially those who stay throughout their lifetime, and they end up feeling this attachment to place that needs to be noted, right? They, they don't talk about it as, oh, 
I wish I wasn't here anymore. They talk about it as well. This is, we look forward to the summers. We go mushroom picking like other Russians go. We enjoy the, the snow, all of this type of stuff. But that's the long, that's the long haul. A lot of them were taken with some of the vision that the planners had. You get that much more prominently, especially for those who stay longer. And then, of course, also by the later Soviet period where the incentives to work in a place like uh, the Kola Peninsula were very generous. You could buy more things there. You could, you had a better salary. You had more vacation. You had a better pension. These types of benefits end up convincing plenty of people that it was worth being up there. Now, there's a widely held view among many that the Soviet system committed ecocide. And, and you discuss this and, and, and push back to some extent on this idea. Talk about the environmental destruction and their legacies in the Soviet Union. And do you think ecocide is an appropriate term to describe the impact of the Soviet system on the environment? This is a, a wonderful question. So you asked earlier on about what attracted me to the to this region. And, and another thing, of course, is that with this hyperdevelopment, the Kola Peninsula earned a reputation as a particularly polluted place. Now, there's a lot going on with this. One factor that's, of course, worth immediately mentioning is its proximity to Norway and Finland, which have some of the more robust environmental movements and environmental politics in the world. So they look over next door and they, this is something that they're able to be alarmed about. So that sort of has shaped public consciousness. But that said, this was the pollution, both from heavy industry and the nuclear industry, was was remarkable here. And you know, by the early 2000s, you get placed like the Lonely Planet tourist guide saying if you wanted to visit hell, one of the, one of these industrial cities is pretty is, is is a good bet. So here in this part of the book, I narrow in on the nickel industry, which, as I said before, is creates certain types of fairly egregious pollution, including denuding vegetation over large swaths of land. Um, and what my, uh, the short of it is that my look at the nickel industry reveals that the pollution that occurred from the Soviet nickel industry on the Kola Peninsula was, I mean, it was always really bad, right? But it was not particularly egregious. It did not stick out as worse than nickel pollution that you would see in Canada or in New Caledonia um, or in other places in the world until the 1970s and 1980s. Something changed then in late socialism and can't just be read back into Stalinist decisions. And here I'm interacting with some interpretive traditions about how to talk about how to understand Soviet pollution. Um, one is, you know, essentially this idea of communist ecocide, that communist countries are just inherently more destructive to the environment and that, you know, part of the solution is to not have a command economy. There's a lot of things going on there. The, the biggest rejoinder I'd have to that one that was actually look at the situation in Cuba where it is almost certainly the case that the Cuban environment would have been much more despoiled had uh, Castro not come to power. Now, had Castro got his way, that might be a different question and been able to develop the country as they want. But the lack of development led to a better environmental outcome in Cuba's case. Another is an idea of authoritarianism being inherently worse for the environment, that if you don't have public knowledge out there, 
that people can't protest environmental decisions and they can't uh, uh, use the, mean, the mechanisms of civil society. Um, I actually, one of the things I find here is that despite retrospective discussion of how little people knew about the environmental situation, you actually saw it being discussed quite a lot. So I only put so much weight into that. I'm not saying that, you know, a really, truly democratically empowered citizenry couldn't have been more effective and that obviously didn't exist in the Kola Peninsula in the 70s and 80s, but I don't see it as the full part of the answer. And then you finally do, do and this is a, another thing that I do want to sort of push back against a little bit, you do get these sort of green Marxists who essentially blame the capitalist world system. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to this idea that there's a, a logic of modern industry that that sort of put the, the real existing socialist countries into a situation where they're competing on that under certain terms that are not of their own creating. But I resist the unwillingness to view this as a communist economy. I resist the unwillingness to see there being a multiple paths to pollution that you do actually get in the Soviet Union and in, and in China even before it turned towards a market economy. And so I think that it's better to think about modern industrial imperative as something that can exist in both capitalism and communism than to think of it as everyone's just, even if they're saying they're co communist, they're just really capitalist, which is sort of the logic of, of that critique. What I do emphasize, though, is the context of the 19. 70s and 80s. And what happens in the Kola Peninsula is two things. First, you get an exhaustion of certain nickel deposits, and, a, and then they start shipping in nickel ore from somewhat from elsewhere that has a higher sulfur content, and that quickly outdoes any of the abatement technologies that they have into play. And then finally, or then second, you get a situation where the extensive growth models that they were following, where more production equals more growth, stop functioning. This is a worldwide story in many ways that you see of deindustrialization in certain places, of a transition to service economy and things like that. But what the Soviet, happens in the Soviet Union, especially in the Kola Peninsula, is that you get these nickel plants producing more and more and more, which produces more and more pollution, and not getting the growth that then they could be used to invest in abatement technologies. Now, I'm not trying to let them off the hook. What I'm trying to do is say that there's a particular moment in the 1970s and 1980s and a little bit into the early 90s, though, deindustrialization pretty much takes care of this, where you have pollution cross the critical thresholds, destroy huge swaths of territory, uh, denuding vegetation, and that this sort of contextual framework, it really gives, gives us a sense of why this is in many ways industry and development gone on without check, okay? Now, in terms of this eco side, I do think, for one thing, by and this is going along with talking about the environment as a participant, that these pollution problems play some role in destabilizing the Soviet system. The sort of more robust claim that the Soviet Union commits offs itself through ecocide, I think, is is way exaggerated and doesn't really make much sense. And finally, what are the legacies of this um, destructive transformation 
of the environment in the Kola Peninsula and in Russia at large today? Because you just mentioned that in the 1990s, you get a deindustrialization process. So how does that impact the, the environment there? And, and what lessons should we learn from this experience of the Kola Peninsula in the 20th century? So, well, what happens after the Soviet collapse, um, there's several things. First off, you get, you get a radical deindustrialization, um, you, which means that the nickel plants, for instance, stop producing as much, which means that they stop polluting as much. This is also, of course, when a lot of people are be- become impoverished, when people are out of work. So this isn't a, this is a, there's a social crisis that accompanies a, a somewhat moderation of an environmental crisis. Um, you also then, of course, get these sort of these neoliberal reforms in Russia in the 1990s that give over these companies to large scale, large companies, including oligarchs, including some of sort of the more famous ones like Mikhail Khodorkovsky has a stake in the Appetite Mines. Mikhail Prokhorov, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, has a stake in Norilsk Nickel, which owns the the nickel mines. And with that, you get a transfer of power over the environment from the state to these corporate actors. Um, and that's part of the thing. Now, that said, the environmental situation in many ways has improved because, for instance, Norilsk Nickel is an extremely profitable company and has now been able to invest in mitigating pollution to some extent. Now, that doesn't make it, again, that doesn't make it a good environmental actor, but it does mean that this period of intense environmental destruction has mitigated. You also have an the issue of the nuclear industry here, which I haven't really talked about yet, but the Kola Peninsula has this situation where you have both military interests through um, nuclear submarines and nuclear icebreakers, um, a whole fleet of them, and a nuclear power plant that provide that solves the energy dearth in the region, coalescing to the point where you have a, something like at one point a fifth of the world's op, uh, active nuclear reactors on the Kola Peninsula. And I make this point that, uh, and this is just going back for a second, that there's a lot of what it is, is a a very modern story of transferring risk from things you see uh, and are clear about, not enough heat, to things you don't see and are less obvious about. Nuclear waste being right next to you and you not having any sense about whether or not it's having a health effect on you. Uh, Especially as an individual, because that's one of the things about radiation is it's often very hard to pin the effects of radiation down to an individual level. That issue becomes quite internationalized in the 1990s as well. So you get the Nordic countries, you get the U.S. coming in and helping fund the decommissioning of certain nuclear operations. You get this Norwegian activist group, Bologna, constantly sounding alarms about the nuclear power plants. You get other international actors playing a very prominent role. In terms of the lessons that I'd draw from this, it comes partially from thinking about the future of the Arctic. This region was extremely developed in the 20th century, and as we are looking at climate change and the likely future of an ice-free Arctic, we're likely to see other countries engage in this type of hyper-development. Canada, the Nordic countries, the U.S. and Alaska. And I think that it's important to see the story not as, oh, well, the Russians did everything wrong, which is sometimes how it's taken, but that there are going to continue to be these tensions and opposition between 
prioritizing growth on the one hand and finding ways of living with ecologies in a decent manner on the other hand. I think that one of the stories of the Kola Peninsula is, is more about a common thing that we've seen in the modern world where growth imperatives are always held as a priority and environmental issues come in secondarily. And I think that's, that's something that needs to be seriously rethought if we're going to move forward with an environment that is adequate for, to both for human and non-human livelihoods. That was Andy Bruno, assistant professor of history at Northern Illinois University, where he specializes in the environmental history of modern Russia. He is the author of The Nature of Soviet Power, an Arctic Environmental History. If you'd like to submit a question to Andy, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who've contributed and continues to help me do this podcast. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Bye.